0: Colossians chapter 3, again verse 1. The third chapter, verses 1 through 10. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come, and in them you also once walked while you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. I want you to go back with me in time this morning, 2,000 years in space to a little village called Bethany. It's a a little bitty town within walking distance of the city of Jerusalem. It's just about nighttime when we get there. And the whole town is astir because the traveling preacher has come and he's saying some marvelous things. And the people have gathered on the outside of the city at the graveyard. And you ask somebody what's going on here and they'll tell you, well, uh, Lazarus, one of the leading citizens of our town, a young man who's been dead for four years, And Mary and Martha, dead for four days, that's a little long, four years. This is an exaggerated story, but not that bad. (laughs) And Mary and Martha, they're they're pretty upset with Jesus, because if he had come, he delayed, but if he'd come four days earlier, Lazarus would have never died. And Jesus is saying some remarkable things, like Lazarus is going to rise again, not on the resurrection day, but on this day. And so Jesus lifts up his eyes toward heaven and prays a remarkable prayer. He says, Father, I'm just glad that you, this is a tidal paraphrase, he says, I'm glad that you uh, already answered my prayer. And the only reason I'm praying now aloud is so these folks can hear that we are one. We're in concert with one another on the same page. I'm just praying so they can hear that we're one. Then he called Lazarus out of the grave. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came out of the grave. He didn't come walking out, he came hopping out. Because he was wrapped up in grave clothes and he couldn't walk, looked like a mummy. So Lazarus came hopping out of the grave and, and Jesus says to Martha, go over there and untie him, loose him and let him go. Everybody is astounded, of course, at what they've just seen. I have a feeling that some of them are scared to death, you know, at what they've seen, and probably some turned and fled. And so Martha goes over there to untie Lazarus. And they start home, back to Bethany. And as they're walking along, the night is coming, and they're talking, everybody's excited, and and Mary turns around and says, well, where's Lazarus? And they can't see him anywhere. And Martha says, well, maybe... Maybe he got detained in the graveyard. All those people want to know what it's like to be dead for four days. Mary said, well, why don't you go back and see if you can find him? Tell him to hurry up and come on home, and I'll go on ahead and get dinner prepared. And so by the time she gets back to the graveyard, night has come, and, and there are some eerie shadows that those tombs make, you know, and she's kind of scared, and she kind of, reluctantly makes her way into the cemetery. She calls his name, Lazarus? Not a sound. And she goes over to the tomb, to the grave, where Lazarus has been buried. And we all know that graves back then were little holes, caves dug out of the side of the hills or mountains. And So she goes over there and kind of reluctantly peeps inside and, and kind of feebly calls his name, Lazarus? He said, yeah, here I am. I'm in here. So she makes her way and looks over inside the grave, and there he sits over there in kind of a corner, and he's got his legs crossed, and he's leaning back up against the wall, and she says, Lazarus, what on earth are you doing here? He said, well, I kind of got used to this place. I kind of like it here. He said, I was here four days, and I kind of like it here. You know, nobody's here to bother you. Nobody's, no telephone ringing, you know, no, nobody bothering you. And he said, I just kind of got used to it and I thought I'd just stay here. And she says, have you lost your mind, Lazarus? Well, you've been raised from the dead. You, you're not meant to hang around in the cemetery any longer. You've been raised from the dead. You're living in a manner that's inconsistent with what Jesus has done for you. You're never meant to hang around in this old death anymore. You aren't meant to stay in the graveyard. Now you've already figured out that part of this story that I've just told is not true. If you've been thumbing through the New Testament trying to find out where I got that you can can save your time. It's not there. I know what some of you are saying. Well, nobody would be so stupid as to go back and you know, and hang around the graveyard and the farmer death. Nobody would do that, but some of you do. There's some folks that have a graveyard religion. You know that, don't you? And they just kind of keep on hanging on to the farmer life. They've been raised to walk in the newness of life, but they walk in the oldness of death. There are some folks that by their attitude and their actions just keep on hanging on to the old life and to the old death and they just keep on hanging around the the cemetery, the graveyard and live in a manner that's inconsistent with what Jesus has done for them. That's what Colossians, this chapter is about. This chapter is about identifying those things that relate to to the old life and putting them off. I have a feeling that, and the truth is known, that Lazarus got out of that graveyard so fast you couldn't see him for a cloud of dust. And I don't imagine he took those grave clothes with him either. I bet it looked like around that tomb and out across that cemetery, I bet it looked like some teenager's room on the, at the end of the week. I mean, clothes scattered everywhere, grave clothes everywhere. And Lazarus couldn't get out of there fast enough. I want to, with you this morning, I want to identify some of those grave clothes that you and I need to shuck that belong to the old life. There are two lists of them in this text. The first list is found in verse 5, and it has to do with with desires or appetites. And the second list of those old grave clothes is found in verses 8 and 9. It has to do with attitude. And uh, are in disposition. I want to see if you've still got some of those old grave clothes. Remember that the book of Colossians was written to Christian people. As a matter of fact, most of the Bible is written to Christian folks. And it seems to me, now this seems kind of absurd to say this, but it seems to me that God is more concerned that His people who are saved live saved then he spends print on getting folks saved, as strange as that seems. Now, let me say what I'm saying. We're going to have a revival here at the end of this month, and I imagine that most of us would say, boy, if we got 100 people saved and baptized in this revival, we'd just have a tremendous revival. Wouldn't you say that'd be a pretty good revival if, if we had 100 people saved and baptized? I'm not so sure that'd be a good revival or not. For if we got a hundred people saved and baptized and this church didn't get revived, it wouldn't be long until those hundred people be just like we are in need of revival, frustrated and fruitless, in need of joy and peace. Let me tell you something. You get a church revived and we'll win a hundred people and baptize them. It may not be the week of the revival, but it'll be all through the year. And it seems to me that what Jesus wants is for his people to start acting like his people, and shuck these old grave clothes that belong to the farmer life and we see people knocking down the doors to get saved. You know anybody that's lost? You've been praying for some brother, some sister, maybe your mother, your daddy, some niece, a nephew, some acquaintance, a friend. You've just been praying that they'll get saved. If, if, if God suddenly came to you and made this proposition, He said to you, um, if you'll quit something, this thing in your life, I'll save your loved one. Is you, can you think of anything you'd still cling to in the face of that proposition? You, can you think of anything worth holding on to at the expense of their eternal soul? I can't think of a thing. that would be worth hanging on to at the expense of the salvation of a lost person. Let me tell you something, that's exactly the proposition God's made all of us. He said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the graveyard, from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and will heal their land. What I want to do this morning is to identify those grave clothes that you and I need to shuck because we've been raised to a new life and we don't need to hang on to the old death. All right, the first list is found in verse 5. Now, if you've got a King James, the real Bible, you may not see the same words here, but I'm going to give you the New American Standard. It says in verse 5, these are sins of the, disp- of the desire appetite. First of all, immorality. word fornication. He's talking about sexual immorality in general. And then he says, impurity or uncleanness. That's the lustful impurity that's connected with ease and luxury and loose living. It's the sexual uncleanness that's associated with Trump Plaza and the Playboy Mansion, as a matter of fact. And then he says that you leave behind passion. Now passion is a state of mind that excites impurity and evil desire. And have you noticed, you've caught on by now, that he begins with the act and he moves toward the thought or the motivation that causes the act. And there is an ascending scale here so that he moves from the lesser to the the greater and amazingly enough he starts with the act and he moves toward the thought and the motivation that causes it. And Paul lived in a day where there was a a lifestyle, a philosophy that said, whatever anybody wants to do, he's free to do. Whatever requires minimum effort and delivers maximum pleasure, go for it. And so they did and Paul comes along and he says, when you come out of that lifestyle and you embrace Christianity, you leave that kind of life behind. And not just the act, but the thought that excites the act. Now, there are a lot of folks that, you know, they like to brag about the fact that they've never committed any of these acts. And, you know, that none of these acts of immorality and yet, if we could read their thoughts, it'd be like lifting lid off a garbage can. The Apostle Paul said, now it's not that you, you leave the act behind in the graveyard, but the very thought and the, and, the, and the desire that promotes that or excites that. And not just that, he's talking about the things that you listen to or you watch that excite the desire. I mean, what do you watch on the screen? I know I'm sounding like some old gray-haired prude, old-fashioned. What do you watch on the screens? And what do you read in print? What pictures do you see? You see, he's saying those things that promote those desires belong to the graveyard. And then he comes, strangely enough, and he says this greed that that amounts to idolatry. If you got a King James, it's covetousness. Now, I would anticipate that when somebody got up to preach and he's talking about the things we need to leave behind, he's going to talk about acts of immorality and lustful desires and all that good stuff, or bad stuff. But, I mean, to talk about greed or covetousness in the same breath, that's such a respectable sin. I was interested to read that some preacher, uh, some priest said that he'd been listening to confession for 20 years, and he had never, ever heard anybody confess to covetousness. You know why? Because it's so respectable. And most of us who are greedy and covetous don't even associate that with the rest. Well, let me let me show you where he puts it in the in the list here. He puts it between immorality and idolatry. It must be pretty serious stuff. Now, let me give you a definition of covetousness. Covetousness has a threefold definition. First of all, it it's the disregard of the rights of others. Secondly, it is the opposite of giving. And third, it's wanting more than you ought to have. I didn't say it's wanting more than you have. That's ambition. And there can be a sanctified ambition. And ambition, there is a right way to covet. I say it's wanting more than you ought to have. Now, by this definition, listen to me carefully. A Christian who does not tithe is guilty of the sin of covetousness. He disregards the right of God to his possessions. It's the opposite of giving, and it's wanting more than he ought to have. Now, some of you are saying, now, wait a minute. Tithing is an Old Testament law. It's it's a rule that comes out of the Old Testament. It belongs to the law, and we now live in the New Testament age of grace. We're no longer under the law. Okay, I'll give you that. I'll admit that. Tithing is an Old Testament law, an Old Testament requirement. I'll give you that much. But you know what the New Testament law is? You know what the New Testament teaching is? The New Testament teaching is that everything you have belongs to Him. You're to give to Him. I mean, that's the way the, the New Testament church did it. They saw everything they had as in common with everybody else and so they brought everything they had and they laid it at the apostles' feet and whenever anybody had a need, they just shared it because they considered all things common. Now, in light of that, the Old Testament law is not too bad, is it? I mean, the, the law of, of, of tithing. And you say, well, now, how is it that, that it is idolatry? If it is greed that amounts to idolatry, and if I withhold my tithe, how can that be idolatry? Well, I'm about to tell you. An idol is something that you put your trust in. And if I put my trust in this, more than I put my trust in this, then this becomes my idol. Let's just suppose that you make $1,000 a month and the guy pays you at the end of the month in 10 $100 bills and you bring them home and you lay them, you put them out on the table, you, you spread them out there, you got 10 $100, bill, $10, $100 bills. And you pick up that first one hundred and according to the to the to the Bible, that belongs to God. The first tenth belongs to him. And you pick up that hundred dollar bill and you get ready to put it in your offering envelope and give it as your tithe to the Lord, and all of a sudden you're thinking, Man, I need to pay some bills that just get us over the hump this month. Next month I will, but this $100 I need, that'll get me over the hump this month. And all of a sudden, you just take that $100 bill that belongs to the Lord and you pay bills with it. You know what you've just done? You've just trusted in that $100 bill more than you trusted God himself. And in that moment in time, you've committed the sin of covetousness which amounts to idolatry. Listen to me carefully. You say, is that preacher saying that a person who becomes a Christian, if he hangs on to the tithe and doesn't give it to the Lord, he's hanging on to something that belongs to the graveyard? That's right. That belongs to the old life. All right, there's a second list. The second list is found in verses 8 and 9 and it has to do with disposition or attitude. You know that the Lord deals more in scripture with the attitude or the disposition than he does with the action. Well, the, the reason why he does is because what you are on the inside, what you are in disposition or attitude is what you're going to become on the outside eventually. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Now, I've noticed that eventually Sin gets around to me somewhere. Now I, I, I I'm I'm real I I'm, I feel real good when the preachers preaching on dipping and and uh, chewing and, and you know and dancing and, and a lot of them do that stuff smoking and I'm just feeling so good cause that you know I, I have no problem with that but eventually they get around to me somewhere. Isn't that isn't always the case? Now, some of you are feeling real good. You're tithers and you've not been, you know, guilty of this sin. But here you are, right here where I am, in this second list. And he said, These things belong to the old life anger. Now, you can't see this word. It's, it's not the flash of temper, it's the, it's the seething anger. The smoldering kind. I've been offended. I've had my feelings hurt. I've been hurt. But I didn't lash back in retaliation. And yet, there is this fire that just burns inside of me all the time. It's the spirit which refuses to be pacified. And then he goes to the second word, and it's the word wrath. And this is a word that means anger that is out of control, it's an outburst of violent temper. That goes, That stays in the graveyard. And then he moves in this ascending scale to malice. And that word means the vicious disposition that expresses itself in malicious gossip. And it arises out of a, of a spiteful attitude that enjoys seeing someone else fail or fall. When you see somebody fail or fall, does that make you just feel so warm inside? Man, I love to see people fail and fall. Is that, is that what, you, what you have to say? I mean, what was your reaction when you heard about PTL scandal? When I was preaching revival out in Lubbock, Texas. We went across the street to visit one of the church members. I mean, he lived within a stone's throw of the church. And we went over and talked to that guy. He'd quit coming to church. And you know what he said? He said, all you preachers are alike. He said, He's he said, I mean, I watch television, I see what you preachers are like. He said, all preachers are the same. And, and the way he taught, you could just tell he was just so glad to cut me down, and the preacher was with me down. He was just, he's getting the biggest thrill out of the fact that somebody had fallen had fallen, somebody had failed. That's that's what he's talking about here. Let me tell you something. When a brother falls, when a Christian fails, the emotion it ought to bring to you is tears and sorrow and weeping. This slander, he says, belongs, this malice belongs to the graveyard. And then he comes to the word slander. Now, some folks say what they're doing, they say, well, I'm just giving him some constructive criticism. You know the difference between constructive and destructive criticism? Destructive criticism is when you talk somebody down. Constructive criticism is when you talk somebody up. I'm just going to give you permission this morning to do all the constructive criticism you want to do to me. As long as your criticism is talking me up, I give you permission to do all you want. To me. But you know what? Most of our criticism is destructive. It's the talking down someone. And then he comes to this term, he says, abusive speech from the mouth. You remember over there in the fifth chapter of Matthew? Jesus said, if anybody calls his brother a fool, he's in danger of hellfire. I remember as a kid used to think, boy, I hope I never slip and call somebody a fool. Whoa. And we'd get together, you know, and we'd talk and we'd say, now you can say this and you can say that and you can say this and get by with it. And most of the time we did. You You can say this about somebody and it'll be okay. You can get by with that, but if you ever slip and call somebody a fool, you'll go to hell. Man, I used to worry about, you know, hope I never slip and call somebody a fool. That's not what Jesus was talking about. He's talking about that kind of talk that that casts doubt upon someone's character. That's what the word fool means there, moral fool. And what he's saying is that if you're a mind to, if you have the attitude or the disposition that wants to cast doubt on somebody's character, you've committed a sin that's hell-deserving, believe it or not. I mean, we're getting down to serious business here this morning. If you're guilty of of casting doubt on the character of anybody in this congregation. You just committed a sin, that's hell deserving. Jesus said, and that doesn't belong in the new life. It belongs in the grave yard. Now, have I identified anybody's grave clothes? Maybe not, but you know the, the interesting thing about the Holy Spirit is, that he takes a sermon like this and he turns the spotlight on our own grave clothes and exposes them to us. In like that early service this morning, a lady came forward, sweet lady, and she said, you didn't talk about what I, you know, my grave clothes, but then she said, this is where I have a problem. And the Holy Spirit had just focused on her own, you see. Let me tell you something. When God's people decide that they're gonna leave that stuff in the past, We're going to see the blessing of God upon this congregation. Now the question is, how do you do that? I mean, how do you quit something you've always done before? How do you leave behind a habit that you've always been a part of? That's the question. Isn't it interesting that most of the time we know the problem, we just don't know how to, to, we don't know the solution to it. Well, the solution's in the text. I want you to take a pencil. I'm going to give you the strategy of how to leave your grave clothes in the graveyard. You take that pencil and you circle two words, seek and set. This circle those two words, seek and set. Now how do you leave the grave clothes in the graveyard, he says, by seeking those things where Jesus is. And it's a reference to the pursuit of one's life goal. He's saying that you make the goal of your life those things that belong where Jesus is. You make that your life goal. How can you say that you want to know about the Lord, more about the Lord if you never open His book? How in the world can you say I want to become a good soul winner when you don't Pursue that. How how can you say, I want to live the Christian life and live like Jesus when you don't pursue that as a goal, you see? For when when the things where Jesus is becomes your life goal, every choice you make will be, every choice you make will be for the realization of that life goal. Um, last summer Van Cliburn y'all know who he is don't you? Concert pianist par excellence Van Cliburn went back to Russia to do a concert and it was just kind of a special occasion so they, they made a big deal out of it in the, out in the Metroplex he was born in Tyler, lives in Fort Worth now we're in some mansion so they had this big story about Van Cliburn for a week in the Dallas Morning News it was interesting, I read them told about his childhood. His mother was a, a piano teacher and she, from the time he was five years old, he was a concert pianist. He could play the piano. And she just instilled in him as a life goal to become a concert pianist. And, and when he went off to, you know, he went to school and guys were playing athletics and he, loved, he loves athletics, believe it or not. He, 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 and he wanted to play ball, and, and but he got to thinking, now, if I'm going to be a concert pianist, I might not not to play athletics because, you know, you can get your hands broken. I got one there. I don't even have a knuckle on this right there because of an injury and playing football. You, you, you know, he might not be able to play. I, I guess that's the reason why I can't play the piano. He, he, he knew that he, he needed to keep his hands, you know, from injury. And, and, you know, the kids would gather around the block in, the, in this area where he lived, you know, down the street, and they'd play, you know, do what kids do, chase girls and climb trees and everything. He's inside playing piano. He practiced from the time he got home from school to way late at night. He practiced eight or ten hours a day because his life goal was to be a concert pianist. Now, let me tell you how to leave these things in the farmer. That belongs to the former life. You make as your life go, Jesus and the things that belong where Jesus is and if you pursue those and seek those things above everything else, it won't be long until you never even think about these other things. The second word is said. Now if you can get a picture in your mind of a compass, and that compass, you can set it down on this pulpit, and it'll bounce around a little while, but that needle will eventually focus a point toward magnetic north, and he'll just sit down on there. So what he's talking about is seeking Jesus, and then setting down there, falling in love with him. How are you gonna fall in love with Jesus if you don't know Jesus? Now you can know some things about me by just looking at me, you can know I'm overweight, got gray hair. If you shook my hand, you'd know I don't work in the fields because they don't have calluses. But you aren't going to know me unless you talk to me. How are you going to know Jesus if you don't develop this dialogue with him? And how are you going to love him if you don't know him? So I make as my life goal to be a follower of Jesus Christ and the best there can be. And I focus on him and I set my life down on him and I learn him and I fall in love with him. And when I fall in love with Jesus, sooner soon, I don't even think about these things anymore. Now if I told you this morning not to look at this choir, what are you gonna do? I remember as a kid, I'd sit out in the audience and I'd see somebody in the choir and I'd look at them and they'd look at me and I'd look away. And I'd think to myself, I better not look back because they'll be looking. You you ever done that? That's what you're doing right now. You're looking, and I'd 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 be thinking, oh, I can't look, but I'd look, and they'd look, and I'd look away. (laughs) The other day, when I was over in Lubbock, I was at the restaurant and I was eating. I wasn't even thinking. There's a nice guy came in with this lady and sat down across from us, and he was eating. I looked up there, and he was looking at me, and I looked away. But I'm thinking, I bet he wonders why I was looking at him. (laughs) I'll never look back. And I was telling myself, don't look back. And I looked back, he looked, I looked. (laughs) Now, if I told you, don't look at this choir, you're going to look at that choir, you can't keep from it. You know how to keep from looking at that choir? Not by telling yourself not to do it, but by focusing your attention somewhere else. I'm not going to stand up here this morning and preach a negative sermon. In fact, I'm through with this sermon. I'm not going to tell you, you don't do this, you don't do that, you don't do this. I'm going to tell you, you set your focus of your life on Jesus Christ and you go for Him. And because your focus is so on Him, you won't even think about it the grave anymore turn your eyes on Jesus look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace I want to ask you this morning get up and get out of the graveyard let's pray Father, now for these moments of invitation and truth, we pray for your will to be done in the name of Jesus our Lord. We pray. Look here, three imitations this morning. I invite you this morning to begin to follow Jesus Christ. Some people ask me, well, if I become a Christian, do I have to give up this? Do I have to give up that? Nail name it. And I'll say, no, you don't. They'll faint when I get them revived. I'll say, "You're not a mannequin in a department store. Doesn't do any of those things either." That's not the issue. The issue is to begin to follow Jesus Christ. Those things will take care of themselves. If you've never come for the first time to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ to begin to follow Him, I invite you to do that today. Perhaps you need to come and place your life in the church or maybe to identify some grave clothes you'd like to leave behind today. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.